It was Lee Strobel who identified six styles of evangelism. So far, we have addressed the direct style and the intellectual style. Today, uh, we will tackle the testimonial style. And before this sermon series is over, we will examine the invitational style, the relational style, and the serving style of evangelism. But let it be noted that the testimonial style is the person who incorporates his or her personal story into their gospel presentation. If Jesus has saved me, the person says, then I know he can save you. A great example of this style of evangelism is found in John's gospel. I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to John chapter 9. This morning, I want to read this chapter in its entirety. So if you're able and willing, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today I begin at John chapter 9 verse 1 and conclude at verse 41. John chapter 9 verse 1. As he walked along, he being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then will your eyes open? They demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I, then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened this man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such a miraculous sign? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. We know that he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, 
What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you try to lecture us? They threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a remarkable salvation story. In this story, we find at least four cues and clues of conversion. The first one is this. Salvation is always initiated by the Lord. Salvation is always initiated by the Lord. In verse 1, we read that as he went along, he being Jesus, saw a man born blind. At this time in his ministry, Jesus was swirling in controversy. Just the previous chapter tells us that Jesus and the boys went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And when Jesus was there, he got into a verbal altercation with the religious establishment. He dropped one of those messianic metaphors. He declared, I am the light of the world. The way Jesus made that statement, it was clear he was claiming divinity. When he said, I am, he was using the phrase, ego a me, which is God language. And the Pharisees got frustrated because Jesus was claiming to be God. He said, I am the light of the world. They said to Jesus, we know that you are demon-possessed. You are a Samaritan. We are children of Abraham. And Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced at the opportunity of seeing me. And they thought to themselves, who is this man? He's not even 50 years old, and he's claiming that he's seen Abraham? Well, really, they weren't listening to him. It wasn't that Jesus was claiming he had seen Abraham. He was claiming that Abraham had seen him. To bring a conclusion to the conversation, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
Once again, he uses that God language. Once again, he uses that sacred phrase, I am. And they know now that Jesus clearly is claiming divinity. So some of them went out because he was claiming blasphemous statements. And they picked up stones to come in and to stone him. But you know what? You can't stone the rock of ages. And Jesus just slithered his way out. He maneuvered his way out of the crowd. And as they walked along, still the disciples are shell-shocked. They're a bit stunned at what just took place as Jesus confronted the religious establishment. And as they walked along, he being Jesus saw a man who was born blind. This man clearly is in a pitiful plight. He's suffering. He's never seen anything. He's never seen the beauty of a sunset. He's never seen the brilliance of a rainbow after a hard rain. He's never seen the majesty of snow-capped mountains. He's never beheld the beauty of his mother's face. He's never even seen his own reflection in a pool of water. This man had been blind since birth. He had never seen anything. Because of that, he was relegated just to be a beggar for his entire life. He never held down a job, was never permitted to go into church because he was blemished in the temple. And this man was a drain on society. And this man was a problem. He was a fixture along the landscape. This man was a nobody. For this man was born blind. Jesus saw a man. The disciples saw a problem. Aren't you glad that Jesus sees you as a person, not a problem? I mean, really, aren't you glad that Jesus does not see you as a problem? He sees you as a person. And Jesus saw this man as a person, but the disciples, they saw him as a problem. Rabbi, they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, clearly, sin has taken place. Clearly, somebody is responsible. The disciples want to know who's most responsible. Was this some example of prenatal sin, that this man did something wrong in his mother's womb, and that's why he was born blind? Or is this an example of generational sin, that somehow his mama or his daddy did something wrong, and it was passed on to him? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They were operating under the assumption that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And clearly, if something bad has happened to this person, either this is a bad guy or he's from a bad family. These men were not operating as kingdom men. They were operating out of karma. They thought this man was getting what he deserved. Somebody's got to be held responsible, the disciples say. So, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, before we criticize the disciples too much. Can we just all confess that there are times that we do the very same thing? We see a homeless man, and maybe we ask in our minds, I wonder what that man did to lose his job and lose his house. Because somebody had to do something wrong. Why? Because we almost operate under the assumption that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents did anything wrong. 
but this was permitted to happen so the power of God might be displayed. Let's be very clear. All of us know what it is to suffer. And sometimes the suffering we experience has a direct correlation to a consequence of sin. Because we have sidestepped the will of God, the end result is that consequences come to bear upon our life and we suffer because of bad decisions. There have been times in my life when I can look back to a certain consequence and a certain situation and I can trace it back to a poor decision, a stupid thing, a, a dumb uh, uh, solution that I thought was the right thing to do. And because I tried to sidestep the will of God, Sometimes we suffer as a consequence of sin, but not always. See, sometimes John 9 happens. People suffer because we live in a broken world. People suffer because we are fallen humanity. And sometimes it rains on the just and the unjust. And sometimes we suffer not because of sin in particular of our life, but because of sin in general. Certainly this man was born blind, and that disease was a result of sin, but not sin in the particular life of this man or his mama or his daddy. It's just sin in general. And Jesus is showing just the calamity of sin in this world because we live in a broken world and we are fallen, broken people. And yet what Jesus says to his disciples is that whatever God permits, he has a purpose to promote. So what God permitted on that day was so that there might be deliverance on this day. See, we, we've got to understand that sometimes bad things happen to us in the past on that day so that we could get to this day and this day God would show himself strong and mighty and God would do a mighty act of deliverance in our life. Sometimes bad things happen to us on that day to get us to this day and this day is the day of salvation. This day is the day of deliverance. This day is the day of redemption. This day is the day of healing and hope and restoration. Sometimes bad things happen to us not because of our sin or the sin of those around us but sometimes it is just a horrible experience because it rains on the just and the unjust and it gets us to this day when we look up and see Jesus and he comes to rescue us it is D.A. Carson who said when it comes to the sovereignty of God there is nothing outside of the sweep of God's sovereignty. There is nothing outside of the sweep of God's sovereignty. The presence of suffering does not diminish the sovereignty of God. He said the presence of suffering demands a God who is sovereign. It's not that just because there's suffering, well, that must mean that God's not sovereign. No, because there is suffering, 
It demands a God who is sovereign, who is in control of all things, who does have the ability to fix up and clean up and straighten up all that has messed us up inside and out. So we have a God who says there is nothing outside of his scope, outside of his sweep, because God is sovereign. He can take care of your mess ups. He can take care of the fallen condition of our world. God can take care of all of our suffering and all of our crisis and all of our problems. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This was done on that day so that this day God might demonstrate his power. And without that man even asking for healing, without that man even requesting for his sight to be given, Jesus spit on the ground. He made medicinal mud and he put it on that man's eyes and told him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, I got to be honest with you. Every time I read this story, I am a bit stunned. And by the look on your face, you're not surprised at all. Apparently, you've heard this story before. Because I promise you, if this was the first time you'd heard this story, you would not expect Jesus to act that way. You would expect for Jesus to say the word and this man would be healed. You would expect for Jesus, maybe, to put his hand on the eyes of this man, enabling him to see. You might expect for Jesus to lay hands on him and give him his sight. But none of us would expect for Jesus to hock a loogie, spit in the ground, make a mud pie, and smack it on this man's eyes. Nobody would expect that. No, everybody was surprised. The disciples were stunned. Nobody saw this come. The blind man didn't see it coming. I mean, he's just standing there. Oh, Jesus, what are you? Oh, Jesus, what happened? You know, and then I want you to go and wash in Siloam. Jesus, thank you for that, but I don't even know where the pool of Siloam is. I've never seen it before. I'm blind from birth. Can you give me some direction, Jesus, of where I need to go? Because I don't even know where the pool of Siloam is located. Friends, all this shows you that salvation is initiated by the Lord. This man didn't even ask for anything. And Jesus is the one who initiated this healing. He simply tells him, go and wash and you'll see. So the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. That brings you to the second clue and cue of conversion. Not only salvation is initiated by the Lord, but secondly, salvation produces a pattern of personal obedience in your life. Salvation produces a pattern of personal obedience. This man simply obeys the instructions of Jesus. Jesus told him to go and to wash and he'll come home seeing. So he went and he washed and he came home seeing. The neighbors were divided. They said, who is this man? Isn't he the man who used to sit and beg who was born blind? And others said, no, he just looks like him. And the man stood there and said, I'm the man. It's me. I'm the one who was blind. Well, what happened to you? 
The man named Jesus, he spit on the ground, he made a mud pie, he slapped it against my eyes. When my face was all caked in mud, he told me to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash, and I did, I obeyed, and, and now I can see. See, friends, this man had a pattern of personal obedience. He just simply did what Jesus told him to do. He was obeying the commands of Christ. Jesus told him to go, he went. Told him to wash, he washed. Told him he would come home seeing, and guess what? He came home seeing. That, 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 that triple phrase that he went, he washed, he came home seeing is repeated in this story. He went, he washed, he came home seeing. He went, he washed, he came home seeing. He went and he washed, and guess what? He came home seeing. They said, we don't know exactly what to do with this man. So they brought him to the Pharisees. Friends, let me give you the third clue of conversion. Is that in, in salvation, uh, there is a call for continual confession of Jesus in your life. If you call yourself a Christian, you will have a personal pattern of obedience to Christ. I mean, you can't say that I used to be obedient, but I don't have to be obedient even anymore. No, if you're a Christian, you will have a story of a pattern of personal obedience. You won't be perfect, but you will have that pattern that you strive to obey, not for salvation, but from salvation. And you'll have a continual call to confess Jesus as your Christ. This man never backs down. His story is consistent. He never backs down, regardless of who he's in front of. He tells people that Jesus has done something amazing in his life. Now, it is true that this man's understanding of Jesus, it grows and it develops. But guess what? So does your understanding of Jesus. You look at verse 11, he just says, the man named Jesus did this to me. You go to verse 17, he's going to call him a prophet. You go to verse 25, and he'll say, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But it's one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. Now, friends, let's just be honest. That is problematic at the beginning of that statement. That is not very good theology. In fact, I think that God puts up a lot of lousy theology because he knows where he's going to take us. He knows the end product. It is not good theology to say whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. That's basic theology. Theology 101. Jesus is God's son. Fully God. Fully human. Perfect in every way. Jesus never committed any sin. Yet this man, he says whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I can tell you, I was blind and now I see. You get to verse 31, 32. He has a conversation with the Pharisees. And in essence, he says, uh, he is a godly man. He is from God. And then ultimately, you get to verse 38. And this man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Do you see the progression? This man who was born blind had an encounter with Jesus. It radically transformed his life. And the longer he confessed Christ, the clearer the identity of Jesus became in his heart and his mind. What happened to him happens to you. It happens to me. I know more about Jesus today than I did when I first believed at the age of seven. 
I, I, I have a clearer vision, a clearer understanding of who Jesus is. I have a clearer understanding today than I've ever had. It's not that it's a perfect understanding, but it's a clearer understanding than I've ever had. That's what this man had. He went from saying he's Jesus to he's a prophet to one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. He's godly from God. Ultimately, he's my Lord, and I believe, and he worshiped him. That progression of a continual confession of Christ, it's true in this man's life, and it needs to be true in your life as well. You find somebody who is growing in their faith, I'll show you somebody who has been converted to Christ. I realize that we all have dry periods of life. We all have pockets of time when, when maybe uh, we may take a step back or two. But, but listen, by and large, the general trajectory of your life is that you are getting closer and closer to the Lord with a clearer and clearer understanding of who Jesus is to the point that you will profess and confess that he is my Lord and I believe and you'll bow down and worship him on a regular basis. The neighbors didn't know what to do with this man so they took him to the Pharisees. And that makes sense. The Pharisees were the local experts. They were the theologians in residence. We do the very same thing. There probably was a time in American culture when society went to the local pastor and asked, what do you think about this scenario or that uh, social injustice or this or that? Uh, but even today, uh, people will go to the experts. They want the expert opinion on this matter or that matter. And they'll quote the expert for a soundbite on the 6 o'clock evening news. They'll get to the expert, and that's the person that will be uh, quoted in the news feed that comes across your phone. So they went to the experts. And they said to the Pharisees, can you please help us? This man is saying he was born blind and now he can see. And we don't know what to do with this. So they interviewed this man. The Pharisees said, um, so what happened to you? And consistently, he said, the man named Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud, slapped my eyes with it, told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I went, I washed, and I came home seeing. When was this done to you? It was done today. Oh, well, wait a minute. Today's the Sabbath. Clearly, this man is not of God, for he broke the Sabbath rules. He can't be of God because he healed on the Sabbath. Now, once again, let's be very clear. Jesus never broke one of God's laws. But Jesus routinely turn the laws of man upside down on its head. The law of God says to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. But along the years, people ask the question, how do you do that? How do you remember the Sabbath? How do you keep it holy? So the Pharisees came along and they said, listen, we will clearly define what it means to keep the Sabbath. So they said things like this, you cannot work at all on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. In fact, elsewhere, the Pharisees said, there are six other days to be healed. Be healed on one of those days, not the Sabbath. They would also say, because you can't work, you can't even knead dough on the Sabbath. By kneading dough, you're working, there's exertion, so you can't do that on the Sabbath. And because you can't work on the Sabbath, there are only a certain number of steps that you can take on the Sabbath. 
We know that all the Jewish people have their Fitbits, but on the Sabbath, you can't have as many steps as you normally have on your Fitbit. So now you begin to think, okay, now I understand why Jesus healed this man in this way. He healed on the Sabbath. Why? To demonstrate that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath. He made a mud pie, which is similar in the exertion needed to knead dough. And he told the man to walk to the pool of Siloam. Clearly, Jesus could have just healed the man on the spot, but he tells him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus knows that the pool of Siloam is just a little bit further than this man is expected to walk on the day of the Sabbath. Once again, Jesus is proving he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But because he did it on the Sabbath, some of the Pharisees said, listen, he, he cannot be of God. He's not obeying our rules. But other Pharisees said, but wait a minute. We've never seen anything like this before. We've never heard of a man born blind who's able to see. Friends, do you... Uh, realize that in the Old Testament, of all the stories, of all the miraculous stories of the Old Testament, there is not one example in the Old Testament of a person born blind given his sight. There are a lot of miracles. Sticks become snakes. Water separates. Even dead people come back to life again. But there's not an example, not one, there's not one miraculous story of a blind person in the Old Testament who was blind at birth who receives his sight. You remember what Jesus said in the temple, according to Luke chapter 4? He's given the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus preaches a sermon about himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim the gospel, to release the oppressed, to give sight to the blind, to give freedom to the captive, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right in the middle of that is that statement that when Messiah comes, he'll give sight to the blind. Yes, that does mean people who had sight and then they got blind, then they received their sight. But it also must mean people who have never seen anything. When Messiah comes, he'll even be able to give sight to blind people. Some of the Pharisees, they knew this. They thought to themselves, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I get it. You think he's not of God. I understand. He's breaking our rules of the Sabbath, but he's doing things that only Messiah will do. He's doing things that only the Christ can do. Let's ask this blind man who's been given his sight what happened. Once again, he tells a story. Who do you say that he is? It's there in verse 17. He is a prophet. By saying he's a prophet, what he's saying is this Jesus, he's right on par, if not better, than Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now that was blasphemous for him to declare. But he's saying that Jesus, this man named Jesus, he, he, must, be, he must be a prophet. Some of the Jews that were listening, they said, listen, we're still not convinced. Let's bring in his mom and dad. So they brought in his parents. They interrogated them. Is this your son? Was he blind at birth? 
How did he receive his sight? Who did it? And the parents said, we can testify this is our son, and we can tell you he was blind at birth. But how he received his sight and, and who did it, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Now, John tells us the reason they said that was because the parents were afraid. The Pharisees had already stated, if anyone declares that Jesus is Christ, they will be kicked out of the synagogue. No Jew wanted to be kicked out of the synagogue. Not only did that mean you can't come and worship, but it also meant you can't do any business in town. You would be on that list. You would be excommunicated, not just in worship, but also in business. So no Jewish person wanted to be evicted, excommunicated, kicked out of the synagogue. So out of fear... They said, ask him, he's of age. Do you hear the truck backing up? I mean, they are like rolling over their son. They're saying, just, just check out with him. Ask him, he's of age. They call him back in. They say, man, um, you've got to confess to us. You've got to agree with us that this man is a phony. He is a sinner. I don't know how he did what he did, but he's not of God. You've got to come clean. To God be the glory. This man is a sinner. And the blind man said, well, verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They kept pressing. They kept asking questions. It's at this point that the man gets a little saucy. I like that. He said, uh, why, why do you keep asking me? I've told you the same story over and over again. What? Do you too want to become his disciples? <laughs> he said, do you want to become his disciple too? Now, by implication, this blind man saying, I am his disciple. At what point did he become his disciple? At the same point that you become a disciple. At the moment of faith. And what's the evidence of your faith? You obey the commands of Christ. This man is a disciple. He's believing that Jesus is a great prophet of the Lord. He is doing what Jesus tells him to do. He's not backing down from anybody and telling his story. And they said, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know who he is or where he comes from. And the man gets even saucier. Now, that's remarkable, he says. I mean, that, that's astounding. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he's doing something that we've never seen before. He's doing a miracle that only Messiah can do. You don't know what to call him. You call him a sinner. I call him a prophet of God. You don't know where he comes from. I say he's a godly man from God. Do you see the identity of Jesus becoming clearer and clearer in this man's testimony? He's saying that Jesus is of God, that Jesus is from God. It's remarkable that you guys can't put it together, the blind man says. And then they just blast him. They say, how dare you try to lecture us? You were steeped in sin at birth. Get out of here. They kicked him out. Jesus heard that they kicked out the blind man. He approaches him a second time. Once again, Jesus initiates this encounter with this man. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man was the favorite title of Jesus for himself. 
And the man who had been formerly blind said, tell me, sir, who he is, and I'll believe. Now remember, this blind man had never seen Jesus. At the moment of his healing, right before, Jesus had spit on the ground, made mud pie, slapped it in his eyes. He's blind. He goes to the pool of Siloam. It's there at the pool of Siloam, away from Jesus, that he washes his eyes, and then he can see. Up until verse 38, he's never seen Jesus. Tell me, sir, who he is so I can believe in him. Tell me, who is the Son of Man? And Jesus said, the one who's speaking to you is he. And in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I told you there were four clues or cues of conversion. And the fourth one is this. Salvation demands a life of devoted worship. Salvation demands a life of devoted worship. If you are a Christian, you will worship Christ. You'll worship him with your lips. You'll worship him with your lifestyle. You'll worship him. It will be evident and obvious to others that you belong to Christ because your life is remarkably different than the culture. Your salvation is initiated by the Lord. Always initiated by the Lord. In response to that Lord-initiated salvation, that salvation inside of you will produce a pattern of personal obedience. And in that process, you will hear the call to continually confess that Jesus is your Christ. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the clearer your identity of Jesus becomes. And throughout your life on earth, this salvation will demand from you a life of devoted worship. You can't say, I love Jesus, I just don't worship him. You can't say it. If you love him, it'll be evident by the way you live and by what you do and by what you don't do and what you say and what you don't say because your life of worship will give evidence of the salvation that God has initiated and sustained in your life. This man just said, Lord, I believe. And he fell down and worshiped. And the word worship means to, to fall down like that before, of a, before a king. This man was paying homage to Jesus. Jesus, you're king of kings. You're my Lord. I believe in you. And he fell down and he worshiped him. Jesus said this man's sight was restored. Yeah, his physical sight, but also his spiritual sight. You know, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it will do one of two things. It will give sight to the blind, or those who don't see a need for God in their life, it will cause them to become even more blinded. The gospel will do that. The gospel will either give you clearer sight or it'll cause you to become even more blinded. That's what Jesus said at the end of our story. The Pharisees picked up on that. What, are we blind? And in essence, Jesus says, yes, you're blind because you don't think you need me. Salvation starts and stops with Jesus. Spiritual insight starts and stops with Jesus. As I read this story of John 9, I, I am always impressed that 
this man who was born blind, he never shied away from his testimonial evangelism. What Jesus did to him, he never forgot. He never got over it. You know, sometimes I think that maybe we've been in church too long and we get over what Jesus has done for us. May we never get over what Jesus has done in our life. May it never get old. May it never grow stale. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Your understanding of him will grow deeper and broader and your love for him will grow even more exponentially as you walk with him and talk to him along life's narrow way. And Jesus will show himself to be the king of the cosmos. And you'll just say, this is my Jesus. The one that I start out to say, he... He's just a man named Jesus, and then he's a prophet, and then this one thing, I know I was blind, but now I see, and now I know that he's a godly man, he's from God, but ultimately, he's my Lord, and I believe, and I worship him. Do you have a story similar to that? Are you a Christian that has that kind of story? I think his story is my story. I think his story is your story. And you have a story like that that you need to share. You say, well, my testimony is, is, is long. It takes me a while to get through my testimony. Since I've been here at First Pelham, I've picked up a tool. I've been taught a tool of evangelism. It's called the 15-second testimony. Do you know why it's called the 15-second testimony? Because it's your testimony in 15 seconds. And, and it's a great tool to utilize in this testimonial style of evangelism. You say, preacher, you can't do a 15-second testimony. You're a preacher. You can't do anything in 15 seconds. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah? Okay. There was a time in my life when I had no hunger for God. It wasn't that I didn't go to church. It wasn't that I wasn't religious. My parents had me in church all the time, but one day my parents told me I needed so much more than religion. I needed a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I had a relationship with Jesus, and over the years, he's developed that relationship, and because of that relationship, which is the most important relationship of my life, it causes me to do some things and say some things and go some things and be on mission for him. Do you have a story like that? Boom, 15 seconds, all right, 15-second testimony, that's it. You just tell who you were before Christ, how you met Christ, and then what happened after you met Christ. And in a matter of 15 seconds or so, you can tell your story. This man of John 9, he told his story repeatedly to anybody who would listen. I'm the man who's been changed by Jesus. In fact, his testimony was probably less than 15 seconds. You're going to walk out of here. We're going to give you another little tool. It's called a coffee mug. We're going to give you a coffee mug to go tell somebody your 15-second testimony about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Listen, D.T. Niles is exactly right. Evangelism, it's not scary. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. There are people all in your life who are starving. They need spiritual nourishment. They need spiritual sight. And only God and Jesus can give it. And God's going to use you. This morning, if you're here today, 
and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I encourage you, I urge you, I plead with you, let today be the day of your salvation. If you are a believer, then I ask you to join me in this commitment that this week you're going to share your story, even if it's only 15 seconds, you're going to share your story with somebody. Can you make that commitment today? That this week, God, I want you to use me to use this testimonial style that, that what you've done for me, if you can save me, you can save anybody. And this week, God's going to use you to do amazing things. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our source of food and sustenance. You are our source of, of sight. And Lord, if there's one here who does not know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. For those of us who are Christians, Lord, help us today to make a commitment that we will share our story with somebody this week. Help us, Lord, to be bold. For you have saved a sinner like us so that we can go and tell the great story of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.